Good morning, and it's good to be back in the saddle. I enjoy closing out our last series with Pastor Eric and Abide, as we talked about joy in the midst of suffering, abiding in Christ. Look forward, really I do, to beginning this new series entitled Giving 2.0 with somebody I respect very much. This is Tim Hampton. He's a pastor, uh, pastored a Mennonite church for about 10 years, and um, now he sells RVs. He's he's, uh, one of our elders and a great man of God. I feel uh, the need, really, to reintroduce myself to you. Many of you have never met me. My name is R. Dallas Green. I've actually been around here for 28 years, but been on injured reserve for the last few months. So you could call me the pastor on IR. I also uh, share initials with uh, Robert Griffin III, RG3. So during, during Redskins season, call me Pastor RG, if you like. The Redskins won last week. Um, for those who didn't know, beat the Chicago Bears 45-41. to 41. And whenever RG3 would make a great touchdown pass, he'd cross himself and point toward heaven. So what we really want to do is point you to the cross and point toward heaven. We, um, we've been studying for a while the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin our talk on Matthew 6.19. We want to encourage you these next few weeks to be reading through the Sermon on the Mount from which we're going to be drawing these sermons. This one has to do with the priorities, the ultimate priorities in life. And when I was out, I had a lot of time to reflect on what my priority really is. And I came to understand that my priority is to make disciples who make disciples, who live and love like Jesus. So Jesus is going to teach us that our ultimate priority is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things we worry about will be added to us. Now, Tim's going to describe in a moment the flow of our series, so you know what to expect. But I wanted to begin with some of the objections we've heard, I'm sure you've heard too, on the topic of giving. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand on these things, okay? But if you've heard this or ever said these words... um, That's where we start. Comment number one, I really hate sermons on giving because all the church really wants is my money. Now, (laughs) some of you are laughing, some of you got a scowl. All right. Now, I believe, really, I do believe that you're going to love this series because we don't really want something from you. We really want something for you. We don't want to put pressure on you. We really want to identify with you and be real and authentic throughout this time. We want you to be free. We want you to experience freedom. Secondly, the only time the church ever talks about money is when there's a financial crisis. Ever heard that? Now, to be honest, we have paid down our debt. It was once upon a time around $4 million. It's a little less than a $1 million. So we have a plan for the... um, approval of the budget to pay down our debt for the next 10 years and be out of debt, which would be an awesome thing. But we also also have propane in the tank. We pay our electric bill. We pay the salaries of the pastors. The church really is not in a crisis. And the third comment we hear a lot is that the church may be all right, but my family is underwater, right? We're flying backwards. This is the comment we've heard more than any other. We'd like to give, but we're in debt ourselves. So once we make the mortgage and pay the car payment, buy the groceries and the clothes and shoes, there's really nothing left. We're kind of tapped out. There's no reserves. We're broke. We kind of live from paycheck to paycheck. We're in school. We don't have anything. So we don't have anything to give. 
So, Tim, tell us where this series is going to take us. Okay. This uh, series, over the next several weeks, uh, is entitled, as R said, uh, Generos- or Giving 2.0. And uh, some of you uh, may have Windows 8. I just got a new computer, and it has Windows 8 on it. Uh, anybody have that? It takes a little adjusting. It's not the same as, as uh, the, the previous versions. And so the idea is that there's some different things we want us to think about with giving uh, that kind of make us think a little bit differently. Um, One of the things that we've been talking about is is giving 1.0 is kind of like when there's a crisis or there's a need and we hear about it and we feel compelled and we feel led to give to meet that need. And and that's good and we need to do that. But giving 2.0 is even going beyond that, going from intervention to prevention, For example, uh, it's good to give to support and to help people who are having trouble in their marriage. But it's also even better if we can help people avoid those problems in the first place and get into a place where they don't have those difficulties. Uh, Or somebody's in poverty. uh, How can we help, instead of just giving to meet that need, which is important, how do we help them avoid getting into that place in the first place? And, And so thinking a little bit more on a proactive versus a reactive way of thinking about giving and and generosity. Also, just the idea of not giving to make a budget. The the Bible doesn't really give a lot of places where it says you got to give to meet the church budget, for example. But it does say you give us an act of worship. And uh, we want us to be thinking a little bit differently about that as well. God really doesn't need our money. He has everything. He possesses everything. So what he really wants is, is something more from us. He wants our heart. And it's going from the idea that I have to give to I have the opportunity to give. And it's exciting, and it's a, it's a different way of thinking about it. The, uh, there's three Ps we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the priority uh, of giving and the pri- where our priorities are. And uh, then it's, it, we're going to talk a little bit about the progressive nature of being generous and, and then a little bit about percentages. And, and what do we do with that? Is that you know, there's some different ways of thinking about that. But the context that we're starting out, out here with is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as Pastor R said. And I'd encourage you to read, even before this passage, start in, start in chapter 5 up through chapter 7. Uh, and this is, this is probably the most famous sermon ever preached. And, and it has so much packed into it. That, that if you read it and just keep rereading it and soaking it for the next couple of weeks, uh, I believe God's desire in this sermon is to show us a whole new way of living. Uh, sometimes they call this the upside-down kingdom, mm. where Jesus came and, and just really turned everything upside down. Uh, we start with the Beatitudes, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he kind of turns everything upside down. And, and caused us to think a little differently about things. Those first passages where it says, blessed are this and this, they're called the Beatitudes, which you've probably heard before. And that word, that idea of being blessed, uh, in, in ancient Greek, before the Bible was written, they used that to talk about how the gods lived. So like in ancient Greece, they would talk about the gods lived this way. They lived this blessed life. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus is saying, if you, if you follow me and you come into my kingdom, mm-hmm. you'll be able to live like we live in heaven, live like heaven is. And and he's calling us to a different way of thinking and living. Some of the discussion over the years on the Sermon on the Mount uh, kind of went along this line that there were some people who believed that the Sermon on the Mount was these great ideas, it was kind of these ideals, and and God gave us those to show us that we're sinners and that we can't live up and that we got to depend on him and and someday in heaven we'll, we'll enjoy that. There were some people who believed that way. 
And then there were some say, no, no, it's for here and it's for today. But it's only for special people. It's for the saints. It's for people who are living in a monastery and, and, and only the select few uh, are called to live that way. But I believe what Jesus is calling us to, I think he's saying that, that it's, it's for now. He's saying this is a different way of living, but it's also for everyone. Uh, and it's a different way uh, of living in freedom and living in, in uh, his kingdom. So in chapter 6 then, starting with verse 19... Uh, we want to go into uh, several, several verses here and talk a little bit about uh, Jesus' teaching here uh, on our treasures. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." And this is, the, this is kind of setting up the stage here, saying this, this issue of our treasures, this is an important thing to think about. And, and he talks a lot about money throughout the New Testament because it indicates something about us. Uh, he says, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. They're kind of linked together. And as I was thinking about this, you know, we, we have a lot of treasures that we store up on, on this earth. And, and they're good and they're things that we can enjoy. But he says, moth can come in and destroy it. Rust can, can wear it out. Thieves can come in and take it. Uh, and, and there's really not a lot of security in it. I was doing a little research and, and I was reading about how much we spend uh, each year on storage, on self-storage. Uh, and the National Association of Home Builders uh, put out some statistics. They said that in 1973, the average house size, the average size of a home in the United States was about 1,660 square feet. In 2000, uh, 2004, it went to 2,400 square feet. So almost a 50% increase uh, in the size of the average home. Meanwhile, the size of the average family got smaller. So there's fewer people living in bigger houses. And then during that same time, the Self-Storage Association says that we've grown to having 1.875 billion square feet of personal storage that's rented out every month. Can you imagine that? So there's over 40,000 facilities for self-storage across the United States. Probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we really didn't even think much about self-storage. But now it's everywhere. It actually exceeds the revenues of Hollywood. More money goes into self-storage than goes into all the movies that are produced uh, in Hollywood each year. So it's an interesting statistic. But just thinking about this, homes have increased by 50%, and we still had to tack on almost 2 billion square feet of storage space just to keep our stuff. And so this is the culture we're in. And Jesus says, wait, there's something different here. I want you to think differently about this. Maybe you've seen the show Storage Wars. Have you seen that show? Where uh, in California, if you don't pay your bill for three months, they can auction off whatever's in your storage uh, space. And so the things that you so carefully put in storage and saved up now belong to somebody else and they, they come and go. So, so you pay money for this. And then we start thinking about all the things that we possess and we also now need to protect it. So we have security systems put in, and uh, we have safes installed, and we have internet security to protect our accounts and, and all these things that we're constantly doing to take care of the stuff that we have. Now, it's wise and it's good, really, to take care of the things and to be a good steward of what God has given us. So it's not to say that owning treasure in itself is wrong. Paul says in First Timothy, in the letter he wrote, he says, "...command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant." nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I just like that last phrase. He, he provides everything for our enjoyment. Yeah. It's a good thing that we're blessed, and, and we should be thankful and grateful for that. So it's not a guilt trip, but he's saying there's something that can happen here. And, and we talk, often talk about our treasures as our possessions. But quickly, the tables can turn, and instead of us possessing our treasures, they can possess us and control the way we live and the control, way, control the way we think. And that's why this is so important. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Yeah. But it's also a two-way street, because where your treasure is, your heart will be, but also where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Mm-hmm. And so this, this issue of giving also plays in there, because it affects where my heart's located. And where I put my money is where my heart's going to follow. I, I heard of a, a football player uh, recently that it announced that he's going to have a, an IPO to sell stock in himself. And uh, he anticipates earning in the first year $10 million. And then you can buy stock in this football player. And then depending on how he goes, how he does, your stock could go up and down. Uh, of course, if he gets injured, you lose, uh, <laughs> you lose everything. But imagine now, I, I invested in this football player. Guess who I'm going to be watching every week? And guess whose stats I'm going to be looking at? My heart will follow where the money goes. And the important thing that I want us to understand throughout this whole series is that God really doesn't need our treasure, but he wants our heart. And so he deals with this issue that this treasure and heart connection uh, is a tough one to break. Somebody said, if you look at your checkbook and your daytime or your planner, you'll be able to see what your priorities in life really are. And so Jesus says, I want to shift your gaze. I want to shift the way you look at things. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, so we fix our eyes... Not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. And Jesus says the same thing here. He says, store up instead treasures in heaven. Start to think about things a little differently. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are good, he says, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad your whole body will be full of darkness. The idea really is very simple and beautiful. The eye is pictured as the window through which the light comes into the body. If the window is clear, if the window is open, then the light can come into the whole room and fill up the room with light. But if the window is closed or darkened, then the room stays darkened uh, inside. The principle is the amount And quality of the light that comes into the room depends on the condition of the window through which the light comes. Jesus is saying the light that comes into a man or woman's soul depends on the condition of their eye because the eye is connected to the soul. Another way of saying this is of a good eye is a generous eye. If the eye is generous like God is generous, then light begins to come into a person's soul, and that soul radiates light to them around them from their generosity. So I'm going to teach you now two stories, one from the New and one from the Old Testament, about light. The first is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, a parable that Jesus taught. It's a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man was living very well. He was dressed in fine linen and purple. He, um, the rich man lived in a very nice house. His 
house perhaps was on a hill, and he had a gate, and he had servants to wait upon him. The rich man had plenty to eat. He always had a bountiful feast at his table. But the uh, rich man never noticed the poor man who sat outside of his gate. The poor man was hungry. And the poor man had a name. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus said, you'll always have the poor amongst you. So you might say, why didn't the poor man get himself a job? Because if he got himself a job, then he wouldn't be poor anymore. Well, this poor man was carried to the gate. And this poor man had dogs that licked his sores. You see, the poor man was dealing with a disability, and he couldn't help himself. But every time the rich man came beside the poor man, he saw his condition. And the poor man longed for some crumbs from the rich man's table. You see, there was more than enough to eat at the rich man's table, but he never gave him a crumb from his table. And the poor man's clothes out there in the elements must have become weathered and tethered. But the poor man never reached inside, the rich man never reached inside his closet to give the poor man any clothes. And it must have rained upon the poor man a time or two. But the rich man never took the poor man inside to give him shelter. You see, there was darkness inside the rich man's soul, and his eyes never saw the true condition of the man. The story goes on to say the rich man and the poor man both died. And the rich man was plunged into darkness. And the poor man went into the presence of God. You see, there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And what Jesus is saying is, because of the darkness inside the rich man's soul, when he died, he was plunged also into darkness. You ever wondered why you were born in the richest country upon, in, the, on, in the earth? Why God has blessed you so much? Is it really about us being able to consume and indulge and not even share a crumb from our tables? When Abraham was chosen, God said, leave behind your people and your country and go to a land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you that you might become a blessing. The reason why God has shared his blessings with you is that you might be a blessing to your family. You might be a blessing to your church, a blessing to your community, that you might be having your eyes being opened to see the needs of people around you and be willing to share. Story number two has to do with a, this is out of, um, out of Genesis chapter 28, and centers around a man named Jacob. Genesis 28 and verse 10. You see, Jacob wasn't always a generous man. Jacob was a weasel, a conniver. Have you ever met a weasel? Someone who's always trying to weasel something out of you? Someone who's always trying to connive and manipulate and sort of put things to their own advantage? Well, Jacob weaseled from his brother his uh, birthright, and then he weaseled from his father the blessing. And you've heard the expression that what goes around comes around? Do you believe that? Well, Jacob 
from having weaseled now was being chased by his brother. He's actually running from his life, running for his life. So to preserve his life, he's on the run. He goes on a long journey. And he comes to a place, and the sun is setting, and he's all by himself. He's, he's very alone, and he's very frightened. He has nobody to protect him, and he doesn't know God yet. And he doesn't know what his future holds. So Jacob does something in the story that doesn't appear very smart. He lies down for the night, and he finds himself a stone for a pillow. Now, I've traveled to many places in the world and slept on in many different conditions. And I've discovered this to be true. The condition of the pillow allows me to sleep or not to sleep. This uh, last week, I was staying somewhere, and they offered me two different kinds of pillows, one firm and one soft. And I laid in the soft one. It was just pure mush ball. And I laid on the firm one. It was just right, and I fell asleep. Well, Jacob found this stone pillow and uh, fell asleep. And that's where the story really gets interesting. Jacob falls asleep on the stone pillow, and God gives him a dream. Now, we heard about how God is working through the, in the world. And God is giving dreams to many Muslims in North Africa. And many Muslims are coming to faith. So we talk about generosity to some of those initiatives working through Africa. You have to know that God is bringing Muslims to faith in unprecedented ways. God is working in ways we can't even understand. How many believe that God does speak to people in dreams? So in Jacob's dream, he sees a ladder. And the ladder begins on earth and it goes up to heaven. So what Jacob sees in his dream is he sees angels ascending and angels descending. Angels come to strengthen us. And angels come to comfort us. When we suffer a loss, God sends his angels to give us comfort. Well, the stairway reaches up in the heavens. And there at the top of the stairway, Jacob sees God with all of his splendor and majesty and power. So in Jacob's sleep, in Jacob's sleep, in his dream, God is revealing himself to Jacob. He is saying, I am the Lord. God is revealing himself to Jacob as the covenant-keeping God. I am the God of your father, Abraham, of your father, Isaac, of your grandfather, Abraham. It's been said that God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. And God wants to reveal himself to you. God wants to be your best friend. And God wants to deliver you from bondage. And God wants to heal the broken places inside of you. And God wants to comfort you when your heart is broken. And God wants to provide for you. And God wants to be your peace, your Jehovah Shalom. God wants to be your refuge and your strength. It is true that God initiates and pursues us and finds us. And he finds Jacob out there in that desert place, sleeping on the ground with a stone as his pillow. And God introduces himself to him and says, I am the Lord. And then he talks about his relationship to his father, to his grandfather. And then he reaffirms his covenant to Jacob. He said, I'm going to give to you, your, to you and your descendants this land. Now, Jacob didn't know it then, but he's going to have 12 sons. 
And those 12 sons are going to be the tribes of Israel, and they would dwell in the land. And then he promises to Jacob that he will send the Messiah, that all the people on the earth will be blessed through you, through your offspring. And then he promises to Jacob this. He says, Jacob, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to walk with you wherever you go, and I'm going to bring you back to this land. And Jacob is awakened from his sleep. And this is what Jacob says. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I want to tell you that God is in this place. This is a place where God reveals himself to us. He said this place is awesome. This is the house of God. And then Jacob made a vow, and this is what Jacob said. Lord, if you will watch over me and you will protect me, if you will give me clothes to wear and food to eat, then I will return to you what is rightfully yours. I will give to you a tithe of everything you give unto me. You see, if God begins to open our eyes that he truly is God, then if God is God, God deserves to be our priority. What the rich man missed is that he would have to answer to God. And what Jacob missed was that God was going to take care of him and fulfill his covenant. And since he would, he would put God in first place in his life. But it is true that we have a choice to make as to who's going to be our master. I like in uh, that passage just that God is in this place and, and we may not be aware of it that uh, there's things all around us that we don't see. And, and this, this matter of the eyes, uh, Jesus, another way of, of translating that is that it's a single eye, that it sees one thing. And, and Jesus goes on here to talk about serving two masters. You can't serve two masters. I've been praying uh, at my work and, and in different situations that God would open my eyes, that I would see people the way that he sees them and see situations the way that he sees them. In Hebrews, it tells us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. And so, so taking that single vision and, and focusing on the one master. Let me read uh, Matthew 6.24 then, where it goes on. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I have uh, the New International Version, and there's many other good translations out there. In yours, it's like mine. Mine uses a capital M on the word money. I thought that was kind of interesting. I did a little research to find out why. Uh, the, the, uh, it has God and money. You cannot serve both God and money, and both have a capital letter at the beginning of those words. The word for money here is a word uh, from Greek that was called mammon. In fact, some translations just translate it that way. They say you cannot serve both God and mammon. And, but it's the word for money uh, also. But it's this idea that it has a godlike quality to it, that money has a way uh, of controlling us, that we live for money, we worship money, we, we do things for money. The Cambridge Dictionary defines mammon this way. It says, the force that makes people try to become as rich as possible and the belief that this is the most important thing in life. Hmm. The, the early church would have considered mammon or money to be a false god that it's a, it's a matter of idolatry that we go after this God versus the true God. So there's, Jesus is saying here, we really have a choice to make. 
We really can't go down both roads. You can't serve both God and money. You're going to either love one master and hate the other or vice versa. And you start thinking about just the word master. Uh, where, I, where I used to teach school, the, the uh, pastor there, Pastor Dave, whenever he would refer to Jesus, he would just call him the master. Hmm. And I was always blessed by that, just thinking that that's who he is. He's the master. But either he's the master or somebody else is. And Jesus is saying there's two possibilities here. Money is a good servant, but it's a terrible master. And in, in so many ways, we so easily, particularly in our culture, can get into bondage under this, this God of money that will start to affect the way we live and start to affect uh, the very days of our lives. And what ways do we serve money? I was thinking of a couple things. One is that we look for money to be the answer to all of our problems. The greatest thing that we need is more money. If we had more money, all of our problems would be taken care of. And some people have more money, and they find out all the problems weren't taken care of. They still have problems because we look for it to be like a god, but it really can't follow through. We spend a lot of our waking hours and maybe some of our sleeping hours thinking about money. This is called meditation. We're called to meditate on God and meditate on his words, but we meditate a lot more on our paycheck and our job and what we have to do and how we're going to make more money. We obey money. Just like you might obey a God, we obey money. We do things in order to get money. We do things sometimes even that we don't believe in or things that we think are wrong in order to get money. I read of a a study uh, done here by Pastor Kent Hughes where he did a survey and posed the question, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? And he asked a number of questions. 25% of people would abandon their families. And that's probably the least offensive. 23% would become a prostitute for a week. Hmm. And this one, 7% would kill a stranger. It's kind of shocking. What will we do for money when it, when it starts to act like a god and starts to control us? Yeah. It has its way of intertwining into all the different areas of our lives and changing the way we, we see things. But a lot of times it's more subtle than that. We, we sometimes trade our lives for money. We trade part of our lives. Uh, time equals money, right? Time is money. And we trade our time for money so that, that uh, we can have more things. Uh, Proverbs says that the borrower is the slave to the lender. And our family went through a situation a number of years ago where we went without work for a period of time and and went through a very difficult struggle. Uh, We ended up starting to live on credit cards for a little while and uh, to have food and to pay our bills and and to to get through. And one of the things that we've been working at the last several years is paying that off. And we're very close. We're less than a year to go and we'll be paid off. But every month there's a certain amount of money that I have to put aside to pay off that debt that I incurred a number of years ago. And I figured it out that, according to my pay scale, I have to work 24 hours a month in order to pay that bill every month. And I start thinking, I trade one day of my life every month for that master. Hmm. And now, that's taking time from my life. And so, I start thinking about that and start thinking differently about money and what, what, am I serving it or is it serving me? Which God am I serving? Will either love one or hate the other? I was at a, a church a little while ago, uh, a number of years ago, where one Sunday they had a celebration and they, everybody got up during the giving time and came forward and gave their money at the front altar and they gave it as a sacrifice. And, and so I believe part of the, the steps to freedom here are as, as we start to think differently about giving is that that's part of the step that sets us free, that it's no longer the thing that has control over us, but it's a tool, it's a servant that we use to honor God and to give him glory.
want to pray uh, about this as well because I believe there is a bondage. And I want to pray just uh, for freedom for that for us, for me. Uh, I'm still dealing with some of those things and and, I want to pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the one that provides for all of our needs. And, and Lord, we, we so often look to money and look to, to uh, treasures to, to meet those needs, Father. But you're the one that provides for us. Mm-hmm. And, and Lord, also that it goes so much farther beyond this world that you have something much bigger and better in store for us, Lord. Fix our eyes on you, Lord. Let us see things the way you see them. Let us see money the way you see it. Lord, let us be freed from it, that we can enjoy it But Lord, use it to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, set us free. Give us uh, eyes to focus on you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for your vulnerability. And uh, so many of us have lived on credit cards and are digging ourselves out. So this is what I think about giving, okay? This is why I get to give. And I think every time we get a chance to give, we ought to squeal with delight. You know, God loves a hilarious, cheerful giver. So number one, I get to grow in gratitude by documenting God's blessings in my life and putting God first. When I tithe, I get to say, thank you, Lord. You know, if God hadn't shown me mercy, I wouldn't be here. If God hadn't given me grace, I wouldn't be alive. God has only strengthened me and helped me that I want to return thanks to him. I get to thank the one who gave it all for me. God, I want myself to be a good investment you've made. I want you to get some good return on investment. I want to be about your business. Because when I take care of God's business, God takes care of my business. Amen? And I get to train myself to obey God's instructions more immediately and completely. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now, we often hear that, like, if you obey me, then, if you love me, then you will obey me. But it's like, if you love him, then you will obey him. See, my whole life was characterized by making up my own rules, by, by being independent of God, by obeying my own impulses. And giving gives me this opportunity to obey God immediately and completely. As a brand new Christian, what I believed was that I needed to dethrone myself and enthrone Christ and hear what he had to say about the matter of giving. So I did this, and I'll challenge you to do this, to read through the Gospels, and this is what I discovered. Jesus is warning us in all four Gospels about the danger of turning money into a false god and building our lives in it and around it. According to Jesus, point two, The trajectory of our life of obeying God moves towards simplicity and away from acquisitions and accumulation. The abundance of our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. And the hold on money is so strong and so deep in our lives that whenever we hear talk about this, the false God of money begins to um, war within us, if you will, of relinquishing or surrendering to God. I have before me a pomegranate, okay? Debbie found me a pomegranate, the first of the harvest, so to speak, at Wegmans. And I love pomegranates. I can't wait to break it open and, you know, eat the seeds inside. Maybe we can share it together. But suppose I was not only receiving this one pomegranate, but suppose this were the pomegranate from my harvest. 
Let's say I was a pomegranate farmer, and I had behind my house, I love this picture, of lots and lots of pomegranate trees. And the harvest is becoming coming in. Now I have a choice to make as to whether I'm going to partake of this pomegranate unto myself, not acknowledging God, or offer to God the first fruits of the harvest, of putting Him in the highest position, of Him being my priority, of acknowledging the fact that God made the sun to shine, and God allowed the rains to fall, and God gave me the land on which this to grow, and God gave me the strength for this harvest. And I want to acknowledge God by giving God the first fruits of the harvest. And it's a matter of trust that not only as I give to God the first, God's going to supply all of my needs as I offer to him the first fruits offering. So when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's saying make the very first an offering to God before you pay your mortgage or your car or buy your food, before you pay for your wedding, whatever it is that lies in front of you, offer to God what rightfully belongs to him, the first fruits, and then the promises of God and the provision of God you'll experience in your life. Make God your number one priority. And it's this uh, freedom that as, as we get that priority straight where he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you as well. And so that it's not that we, we don't have the other things, that God still blesses us, but it's putting the priority right and becoming free from the bondage uh, to money and to our treasures. So our hope is that as we go through this series, that we begin to evaluate and think about which God am I serving? Is it God, the God of heaven, or is it money, the God of earth? What does my checkbook say? What does my calendar say? What would be indication of what the priorities are in my life? And what the, the whole passage here is about is a whole call to a whole new way of living. Freedom from the love of money. Living under a new master, a good master that has our best interest in hearts. And one that doesn't want our money but really wants our heart. Dave Ramsey uh, has the financial peace uh, class that if you haven't taken, I'd encourage you to look into that. But he has a phrase that he repeats often. He says, live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else. But then he, at the end of the series, he says, live like no one else so that later you can give like no one else. And he, he paints this picture and has us understand that this, this whole idea of giving, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, as, as R said. It also could be a hilarious giver, one that's just so excited about giving. He paints pictures and tells stories. For example, one uh, one person who has gone through and, and made the priority God and got everything else in order and heard of somebody who was trying to adopt a child and needed $15,000 and they were saving up, they were able to write a check and give them $15,000 because they had changed their life so that they could be generous and so that they could live a different way. What an exciting way to live, to be able to do that and to be able to have that kind of generosity. Live like no one else so that you can give like no one else. Everything that I have came from God. He gave it to me to enjoy. He gave it to us to enjoy and to share with others and to bring glory to his name, to be part of something that's much bigger than our little lives, something that will go on beyond our life, uh, something that we'll enjoy eternal rewards for. And, and that is what he's calling us to is a whole different way of living. I was thinking of uh, in Ephesians, the, the uh, familiar benediction 
uh, which uh, I often come back to, where he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it's at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He has immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and he calls us to join with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for us, that you called us to be part of your kingdom, that you called us to share in something much bigger than our lives, Lord, that we could uh, live joyfully in your provision. Lord, I pray that we would be free from, from the bondage to money and the bondage to debt and the bondage to, to uh, hoarding and greed, Lord, that we would be set free to see things and see people and see our lives even the way that you see it, Lord. Mm. Open our eyes so that we might see. In Jesus' name, Jesus. amen. Go in peace.